This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Hello, and welcome to another World of UX podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks for taking the time to join us on today, and a special welcome to those of you listening, tuning in for the first time. We are going to continue today in the series we've been presenting where we've been talking about today's sinister culture of UX. But we're going to put a little bit of a spin on this particular episode. And this one is going to be dedicated to not the people doing the work, but the sinister elements at work when it comes to clients and stakeholders. Yes, this is something we need to be aware of. It just is. It's a reality. These are the things that we're going to talk about are things that happen. I'm going to be keeping these examples on the pretty much the concise side tonight. I'm not going to get broad with a lot of the the examples, but it the things that I want to stress for the most part, they all sort of revolve around the same types of, of elements. And these are things that that I did not see happening in 2005. I didn't see them happening in 2010. These are these are things that are more prevalent and more common today than they were when you had more people who really understood what UX was and people who really let us do our jobs, <laughs> quite frankly. So we're going to talk about basically three traits. I've got some addendum that I'm going to share along with it, but I'm really just going to have three jumping off points. But each one of these is stakeholder related and they are client related things that if we're going to thrive, we need to be good at managing things that we need to be good at spotting things that we need to be trying to do what we can to counter these things because the impact that they have is extremely detrimental. And I'm going to start off with one of my addendum notes. Some of you who listen to the podcast are familiar with me talking about UX maturity a lot. Uh, there's a lot of UX maturity models out there. We we talk about them all the time. You don't have to settle on one. I always talk about that. You just want something that you can use to help manage where you are, the direction that you're going. You want to be able to look at how you're progressing. It's good to have UX maturity as a as something that you manage as part of your overall UX strategy. Without it, it really just ushers in anarchy and it just it just puts us at a disadvantage. It is a critical thing to embrace. And I have seen people recently start to take aim at UX maturity and saying that we don't need it. And so this is a sinister trait. It's not on my list, but it is, uh, as, as I said, this is an addendum for, for this particular episode. Folks, we need UX maturity levels. Uh, I, I have talked before about how Nielsen Norma Group had a, a UX maturity level that they had shared. It had been around for quite some time. And they quote unquote updated it last year. Now here's the problem, and I talk about this. Any of my talks recently about UX maturity, you'll hear me talk about this. In recent years, when they supposedly updated what they did, they 
it seems that they updated it, but really they took some of the more critical steps, some of the most critical levels out of the, the new model and replaced it with things that I like to refer to as being more politically correct. And, and that does the discipline a gross disservice. They talked about in past times, they talked about people being hostile toward UX. They talked about skunk works. They talked about developer led design. All of these things are, they were removed, but all of these things are actually more prevalent today than they were yesterday, which makes them that much more important to be aware of and for us to have the appropriate strategies to manage these things so we can be better off, so we can bring value, so we can vault our organizations and our internal UX practices forward. But if we act like it's not there, if we go into ostrich effect bias mode and stick our heads in the ground, well, now we've got a problem and and that's not going to pan out well for anybody. So just wanted to call that out because it's going to lead into, it's going to be related to some of these things that I'm going to talk about here today. So the first one, uh, I'm going to share a story, three stories, but each one of them, as mentioned, is revolving around one consistent element. And it has to do with, as stated, the fact that this is stakeholder and client related. So, but more specifically, what I'm going to be talking about is from a sinister perspective involves the way the work is being done. The way that UX work is being done today, in many cases, is problematic. It's not realistic. It is something that is in the midst of a time where we've been under siege now for about 12 years. People have been trying to redefine the discipline. People have been going about doing the work a different way. People have been, and this is part of the, not one of the three things I'm going to mention, but it's one of the addendum items. People have been exalting process. And I've done a talk on that before uh, as well. If you you never heard it before, go out to YouTube and look up a talk, uh, my name, and then the title of design processes are overrated. And you're going to hear a presentation that is trying to call out the fact that all processes, well, let me back up. There will always be a process. There's always a way that people will approach the work. That's all a process is. It's the way that people approach the work. Even if somebody doesn't have a formal process, they're going to have a process. So there is always a process. A process goes without saying. But what I talked about during design processes are overrated was I I brought up several of the common or I should say several common, not the common, but several common design processes. And I basically illustrated, uh, at one point, I put them side by side. And I talked about how it's really mostly an issue of of the, the terminology that's being used. And, and we cannot just reduce this to something that's associated with nomenclature. The processes basically all do the same exact thing, and you end up arriving at the same exact place. And for that reason, it's not good to overemphasize what process somebody is using. And I ended up, I ended that talk 
with a special segment where, and this taps into the, the dysfunctional hiring piece that I've already addressed, there are people who will actually, it's really sad, people will hire based on what process someone knows or doesn't know. That makes zero sense. Zero. It makes zero sense because all processes are basically the same thing. And to reduce it to an issue of semantics, oh, you do double diamond, we're interested in you. But you over here, uh, you're more familiar with doing agile work. We don't want to talk to you. Oh, and you, you're using Jesse James Garrett's five planes. Oh, we don't want to talk to you. Oh, but you approach it this way. Folks, it's all the same. So before we even get into the how the work is being done, the foundation of the work being done is usually a process. And no matter what process someone has ever done, they can always become more comfortable and familiar with whatever process somebody is using at another company. When people use a process to consider or to eliminate someone from consideration for a role, that's usually just an excuse. And someone will say, oh, that person wasn't familiar with this. And what's really crazy about it is there are people in the UX hiring circles who are in the business of, and I say this a lot, discriminating against seniors because we're not into the, the box checking mindset, which is really what a process is. Because when, you, when you've done the work, as much as a true senior has done the work, nobody's looking at the process anymore. You just, it, it's all second nature. And once something becomes second nature, you're no longer looking at boxes, checking boxes, referring back to boxes. You just do the work and you've done it so many times. It, it, it's really hilarious. People who have done something so many times, some of us have worked on 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 projects. You really think we're looking at a process? And I actually personally was up for a job once and, and I was told that they decided to go with a different person because the person did a better job of explaining their process. And actually the people who interviewed me were all on the lower end of the seniority spectrum, the, the that totem pole, if you will. And so what really happened was through their biases, they could relate to that person more and none of them could relate to the fact that once you've been doing the work, for X amount of time, you're not thinking about process. Well, we'll eliminate for the purpose of this presentation the fact that they didn't ask me about my design process, which was, uh, I, I think I told that story another time. They did that purposely because they didn't want to consider me. But hey, hey these things happen. It, it, it's life. We, we move on. But process should never be used to place more weight on someone's consideration nor should it be used to disqualify someone. It's just a process. And there will always be a process, whether you use one that's popular or formal or not, and you just want people to be able to do the work. So, so but that said, let's look at these three stories that I'm going to tell to help show you how the work is being hijacked. It's being commandeered. There was one particular situation and and I'm, I'm, some of these stories are me, some of them people, some of the things I'm going to mention, some of them happen to other people. But there was a situation where we were working on, this is me, <laughs> we were working on a mobile app for a company. And it was really interesting there, uh, this group was trying to build a UX practice 
they were one of the uh, one of those situations where they they knew they needed somebody in charge of UX. They didn't have anybody qualified. So they do what I call a retrofit. And some of you, if you're familiar with me at, at all, you've heard me talk about posers, retrofits and upstarts uh, An upstart uh, or retrofit rather is a person who really had another role and they were put into a UX role because they needed to have somebody they needed to fill that seat. And the person that ended up in the role wasn't really qualified, but the person was the best thing that they had to go with at the time. So the person isn't qualified. And usually when a UX leader is not qualified, they take umbrage when qualified people come on board. So I already came into this organization dealing with this particular thing. And so we're, we're, we're working on this app. We're trying to get some, get ready for a big release. And I was new and I was trying to get to work and bring value. And when you start a new job, you look for low hanging fruit. That's, that's what any and everybody should do uh, while you're onboarding and, and, and gathering your yourself and getting your bearings. There's always low hanging fruit that you can, can apply yourself to. So you can start bringing value as quickly as possible. And then you continue to learn just a little tidbit there, a little tip for somebody. But what was interesting was they were asking us to work on this app. They, they're telling us how important it is. And we understand it's the, it's the flagship product for this organization, but it already existed. It was already in the wild. It was already in use by clients all over the United States. And so here we are, I'm just fresh off the street. I don't know the product yet. And so as is normally my case, the first thing I want to do, and I'm a staunch Jesse James Garrett five planes person. I want to understand the user needs and the business needs upfront. We're not going to design until we understand what those things are. And so I began to listen to what these people were talking about. And it wasn't cleared. They're just talking about how they had to design something. Nobody was talking about business needs. Nobody was talking about any design problems we were trying to solve. Nobody was talking about any pain points or any issues with the previous version of the app. They just said, we just need to update this thing. There was no clarity. There was no understanding whatsoever. And so, of course, me being the person I was, and this is what UXers are supposed to do, we're the inquisitive bunch. We're going to ask questions that are going to help us to achieve a great starting point. And I needed to know current state, and I needed to know where we were trying to go. And so I, I just had to ask, hey, so where are the requirements associated with this design effort? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? So what, is, are there any, is there any documentation I can review? What, what are the requirements? And the person looked at me, had this really bewildered look on their face, and they said one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in my career when I asked if there were any requirements and where the requirements were so I could review them, the person responded by saying, the requirements are that we design it. The person walked away from that conversation thinking that I was a problem. When in fact, I was, this is where when you do UX work the right way, people who are flying by the seat of their pants and people who know what they're doing, you're going to butt heads. There's going to be a problem whenever qualifications or qualified individuals come in contact with the fake until you make it crowd. They're, they're, those two, oil and, and water, just simply don't mix. 
and and neither does integrity and, and ethics with just going along for the ride, just let me keep getting a check. We don't care about quality. Well, how dare you talk to us about a quality approach to work? And so, but this is what I'm trying to get at. The stakeholder took umbrage to a valid question. Nobody can achieve success in their work when people cannot ask valid questions. I mean, really, the requirements are that we build it? Really? Uh, and I never got any clear, I never got a clear understanding. I, I eventually later was talking to somebody and they showed me this big, somebody did produce later a requirements document, but it was more so a, uh, a document that they were using as a reference point. I even came back to them later and they said, it would be great if we could add visuals to this so that we, when people were doing work on certain segments that they could actually see the screen that paralleled with this part of the document. And the, the person in charge, the non-UXer who was in charge and all they had ever done was, they were a former business analyst and all they had ever done was documentation. They'd never done UX a day in their life. And they told me, oh, it would take too long to do that. Darren, I hear you. That sounds like a great idea, but it would take too long to collect all those screenshots and put them in the document. <laughs> I produced all of those screenshots and updated the document in less than two days. Uh, they were saying that it was going to be three, four, five weeks. I did it in two days. So when you when you have people that really know how to do the work, people who don't, uh, they're, they're embarrassed when certain things come up. They don't want to look like they don't know what they're doing. And, and so it, it, it becomes a very difficult proposition for these kinds of people to coexist. But basically, the way the work is being done, that's what we're getting at here. The way the work was being done was contrary to quality. The way the work was being done was contrary to being ethical. The way the work was being done, it didn't really have a strong value prop for for the, the stakeholders that weren't cooperating, for our clients that were all over the country, uh, it, it was just a bad situation. So when you're trying to get the work done the right way, do, do not be surprised if you run into a brick wall and have a difficult time trying to do things the right way. Everybody's not going to cooperate. So segment number two, and I, I like having a little sound effect, but we got to do it without sound effects here tonight. The whole order taker scenario thing is becoming more and more prevalent and more common in UX circles today. And, and there was a situation, and again, it's one of my stories, something that I, I observed. I'm working at a company, uh, and at this particular company, who happened to be a leader in their field, and practically well, most of the places I worked, they were leaders in their field. And this company was a leader in their field. They were trying to, as a lot of companies are, they're trying to get more involved from a UX perspective. They're trying to hire people to come in and do the UX work. They 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 were drinking the Kool-Aid. I mean that in a good way, that we need to have people who are responsible for optimizing the user experiences for our products and services, understanding our users, understanding our customers, understanding how these things are supposed to be done, executing in the right way. We want that competitive advantage that comes through user experience. They were all on board, seemingly, when it comes to that. But 
it's one thing when a, a leader says that they want these things. That doesn't always trickle down to all the stakeholders in the organization. And that's what I experienced in this particular story. I'm in a situation where I'm working with people who know my stakeholders knew my, my level of experience. They knew that they didn't, they had never worked with UX people before. didn't quite know how to work with UX people. They would ask me questions all the time. And, and as it always is my case, I'm a very transparent individual and I do believe in building relationships. I think that is critical to succeeding when it comes to UX, to have strong relationships. So I was taking all the efforts to make sure that these relationships were optimized to the extent that when they would ask me, we would have these little informal UX education sessions. And, and I was helping everybody to get up to speed and then they would understand what I would do and why and everything seemed great. And, and, and then I started noticing something and it's something that happens a lot. In UX circles, there are many people when they start to understand what UX is and how UX is done, a lot of people want to get involved and actually do the UX work. And there's a lot of people that talk about democratization and they really don't understand what democratization is. When, when democratization was first introduced from a UX research perspective, it actually was meant for people to, to collaborate when it came to the synthesis of the data. It was, it was meant to be this open discussion and partnering and going back and forth with all of the stakeholders and the people who were responsible for being on the front lines doing all this UX work. We were all supposed to come together and then talk about the decisions that needed to be made that came out of the research. It was never, democratization initially was never meant for somebody who was not a UX professional to come into our side of the camp and do the work. People took the word democratization literally and thought that other people were supposed to get involved in actually doing the work. So let's make that clear. Now, a lot of people who use the term democratization are, are embracing the incorrect premise about democratization. So that said, I'm in this situation. I'm helping people understand UX. I'm helping people understand how the work is done. And most notably, I mentioned Jesse James Garrett's five planes, which I still love and still apply no matter what process is being used at whatever company I'm at. I still use that approach today because it can be retrofitted. I can do it. And, and, and that way I can maintain my same approach and still achieve the same things instead of trying to shift and go from, from process to process. That, that is really, that's frankly, that's just silly. But I let the people know how important it was to understand the requirements. I drilled at home. So if we don't understand the requirements, we don't have a triptych. We don't have a roadmap. We don't know where we're going. We need to know where we're going before we launch out and, and start putting forth effort with regard to certain things or certain types of effort with regard to it. Basically, you can't design unless you know what you're designing. We, we can't design unless we have an understanding of our users. We need to... There's a lot of things we need that the UX person needs in order to get certain things done a certain way and bring optimal quality. Even if it's just an MVP, we still need certain information. And so well, the, the team understood that. They understood that. And, but what's, what happened was one of my stakeholders began, that person had access 
to all of the things that the documentation that fed into the requirements instead of letting me see it. And part of this is fine. But instead of letting me see it, that person wanted to understand what was going on with the work. They need, they wanted to understand what the business and the user requirements were, but what they did was, and this is where the order taker component came into play and they never understood this. They wanted to understand it, but did not want to give me the chance to look over the requirements and digest them for myself. They wanted to look it over, draw conclusions, and then turn me into an order taker. So they didn't realize, and all that they came to understand about UX, they never did digest the piece, and I did talk to them about that, that UXers are are not order takers. We're not here for somebody to just bark some orders at us, and then we run off and we do it. And so... In so doing, they're going to end up with a subpar product. There's going to be a lot that they don't see. They do not have a personal heuristic repository. They simply don't know. Now, anybody can design anything. If you sit somebody down and ask them to design something, they're going to design something. And it's something that somebody can go and build. It doesn't mean it's going to work. It doesn't mean it's going to follow the interaction design principles that are out there. It doesn't mean that it's going to be heuristically sound. As a matter of fact, it won't meet those principles and it won't be heuristically sound. But stakeholders don't know that. So consequently, uh, the the folks uh, reached a point and, and couldn't tell me about it. They got I thought we had a strong relationship, uh, but instead of talking to me about it, uh, that that ended up becoming a sore a sore point, uh, if you will. It ended up becoming a pain point because they didn't realize they wouldn't let me digest requirements. They wanted to digest them for me. And then put me in baby bird mode. They're going to digest it and then cough it up and and feed me like a baby bird and I'm not going to do anything. That impacts how the work is done. When UXers are reduced to being order takers, the work will suffer, number one. Number two, when that happens, the UXer is going to become displaced. Because if they're doing that, and those same people would come up with designs sometimes too. They're already seeing themselves in your role. They are seeing the UXer as unnecessary. And I've had people tell me when they would see me educating people at different companies, they say, aren't you concerned that they're going to turn around and try to do the work? And, and I told them, no, I wasn't. But, you know, truth be told, uh, there are some instances where that is exactly what happens. And the stakeholders try to basically take over and, again, displace the UX professional. So this is this is a, a big problem. One of the sinister things that's happening is that these people aren't necessarily trying to displace UXers, but that's what ends up happening, especially when people in leadership see it and they think, well, what do we need them for? I'll just keep you. And then people, for some reason, when people start designing, it's like, it's like they become intoxicated. When, when people who aren't designers start designing, they, they feel like this is a high that they've never had before. They don't want to let it go. I, I've seen it happen a lot. It's not a good thing. It doesn't help. Uh, it doesn't help anybody. And it puts everybody at a gross disadvantage. It threatens the the brand experience. It threatens the brand goodwill. It threatens the, the competitive advantage that a company either has or is trying to get when you have non-designers doing design work. And there, there's big name people in the in the, in the UX community to say that everybody's a designer. 
Everybody's not a designer just like everybody's not a doctor. Everybody's not a landscaper. Everybody's not a dentist. Everybody can't cook. Everybody can't design. Everybody's not a designer. And when you have people that are not designers do the design work, you are cruising for a bruising. It should not be done. So this order taker thing, I told a story about how it was happening. There's another 50 to 100 different ways, at least, that will illustrate how the order taker thing comes about. Basically speaking, the order taker mindset and the way it gets facilitated is is a critical sinister element at work in UX today. And we have to really work hard to try to combat that, to try to, to, to respond to it the right way. But it does start with being aware of it. So uh, that's what we're doing here now today. The third example, and this is one a lot of people see, have done, I experienced part of this, not fully, but this whole product thing, that the the work is being sabotaged today, is being commandeered, the way the work is being done has changed because there has been just a massive shift. You see product positions everywhere, and these product designer positions I really like the pinnacle experience associated with what I've been talking about since 2011, 2012, the siege against UX. People just wanted somebody to do what they said. Well, they're getting that now in, in, in the average product person. I've, I've had a product role before, but we were that was just our title. We did UX work with the product title. However, in that environment where I worked, the stakeholders had been sort of put on a, a track. The, the, there were some, some, some graphic designers, some visual designers. Prior to my joining that particular company, the, the UX department was built by visual designers and all they knew was product. And that's all they did. So when they had the product title, it fit them. But our boss, our leader, was trying to, trying to really groom the department the right way and trying to do real UX work. So we still had a product title, but we were doing UX work. And we were successful to a great extent. But there was it was always rough to, to get certain people to buy in because they had a product mentality. And, and, and that's why I say the average product designer, but most product designers really are order takers. Most product designers, uh, they, they, are, they, they would fit into those the two stories I told previously they would just do what they were told and and then the the stakeholders happy until the until they start losing money then then everybody wants to wake up and try to figure out why but nobody knows why because people who know why aren't on the team but at any rate many product designers are expected to make sure things look good there is no focus on ux methods methodologies techniques uh, everybody wants to have a little a little design sprint and a little workshop and some little affinity mapping, but they don't know how to do the work. They, they know how to do UX theater is what the average product person thrives at. And the sad thing about many product design roles is that the lack of skill, or I should say, there, there you don't need to be skilled to land a product role. I know people who've had zero UX experience they got leadership roles, and, and by leadership, I mean working leaders like staff, principal, no experience in UX whatsoever. And, and they would get these roles that would, if you just looked at it on paper, 
If you looked at an org chart, say, oh, that person must have 10 to 15 years of experience. Well, they had zero. I've seen developers put in charge of UX teams. That should never, ever, ever happen. They do not know what UX is. And I've never seen anybody in my career, one or two, perhaps, but for the most part, they're outliers. So it's like it never happened. You never see developers uh, or, or UXers go into being developers. You don't see that. You see everybody coming into UX. It's more of a challenge, but it does require a certain persona. And a lot of people simply do not have the persona to do the UX work. And, and these things that I just mentioned, these are issues. So all in all, the way that product is being run today, it, it, it is that. Just come and make things look good. Uh, I, I've seen some really terrible situations. Uh, but every, I, I think I see more product positions on the market, and I'm not looking for anything, but I do make it my business to always know what's going on because of all the mentees I have and all the different talks I do and things of that nature. I think that I have to know what's going on, and I see the volume of product versus the product of UX. Those scales are starting to tip in the direction of product, and, and that's what people want. And people can go and not have any skill and get the product role. And they do nothing on their job for a year, two, three, four years, and they'll get promoted. And they still have yet to do real UX work. And their boss doesn't really care. And the company doesn't really care. They do, but they don't. Uh, and then eventually they finally realize, oh, you folks aren't bringing us any value. Let's just get rid of everybody. And those are mostly happening in scenarios where people are not doing UX work. And I don't know why people don't, don't see that. But the mix of the work that's being hijacked, folks, it, it is astronomical. The volume at which it's happening, the 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 volume of unqualified people operating in UX space, it's just sinister on its own. That's just a sinister element. Uh, a lot of these folks don't desire real value. Uh, these people a lot of times are counting on folks who don't have any ability. And the mixture of those two things, I'm talking about the people in charge and the people doing the work, when you get people who don't really desire real value, hiring people who can't bring real value, the the value prop through that commingling that's happening there, it's it's at the pinnacle of absurdity. Really, it's really funny. To the extent, if you talk to those people about real UX a lot of times, they just look at you deer in the headlights. They, they just, they want nothing to do with it. I've seen it way too much. I know people who've seen it way too much. We have reached the day where having real UX skill is frowned upon and disregarded in far too many scenarios. But it basically, folks, the work, the work, the work, the work is now tainted. <laughs> the work is now tainted. And that's why you see, I even saw a, a post by another leader I won't even say supposed leader. The person is a leader. At least it's being done under the person's name. And we, we see these, which, which design do you like better, A or B? And it was funny that I saw in the name of that leader, because I still don't think it's him, but in the name of that leader, they posted the same thing, which design do you like better, but they put a whole bunch of other little, little, uh, a uh, little cutesy thing, little butterflies, if you will, the uh, a metaphorical butterfly and some cotton candy with it and asked the same question. They just dressed it up a different way, but they were still asking the same thing. Which design do you like better? 
A or B. And it's funny that when they dressed it up and made it look fancy, that there were people who did not know that it really it was really the same exact thing. And, and that boils back down to the work. That kind of stuff is happening in the workplace. It, it, it's become a, which design do you like better? And so if UX is going to be restored to its rightful place, these, these work scenario, the way that the work is being done, it has to be restored and it's not going to be restored until, until we start seeing people who deserve to have these leadership roles, get the leadership roles back. That's part of why we're doing that work that we're doing now with the American Board of Design and Research. We're trying to push for people to get licenses, not certifications, especially a certification of completion. You finish the course and you get a certificate. And a lot of those people are running off. They're doing that today and running off and telling people that they're certified. And I have told those people, like the Google program, I tell people, you're not certified. You got a certificate of completion. And they just ignore me because they want to believe they're certified so much that they're willing to ignore facts. This is a discipline that requ- that that is grounded in and requires attention to and respect for facts. Anybody who does not have respect for and give attention to facts, you can't do the work the right way. And eventually, people are going to see it and they're going to respond to that. We need to restore the discipline. It's being taken from us as we speak. People who respect it for what it is, and keep it in mind, when you do UX the right way, it's very easy to go into one of these organizations that doesn't understand and doesn't value it, and they're going to look at you cross-eyed. And it's happening way more than people choose to admit today. And that includes that these FANG companies too, these big companies, uh, they're not doing UX right either. All you have to do is use their products to see it. We The only way we can do this is to take it back, represent UX the right way in your own circles. I hope more people start to land positions where UX is valued properly. And when that happens, maybe we can start turning the dial back in the other direction. But for now, this mindset, it's the majority and it's ruling. And it's really sad. And there, this is really, this is depressing. Well, it's it, it's what it is. So who, people, <laughs> why are you telling, don't, don't tell me it's depressing. It's happening. So we have to deal with it, right? We have to manage it. And, and we've given people solutions on how to do this. And a lot of people are not opting into that. They're going to do, a lot of people are going to do whatever they can do to keep getting a check. And they don't care who gets hurt in the process. They don't care how the discipline gets misrepresented. A lot of people, all they care about is a check. I know you need a check. I know you got bills you need to pay. I know you got kids you need to feed. I know you got to keep a roof roof over your head. But at some point in time, if people don't represent, it's funny, this is a catch-22. If people don't start embracing the discipline of UX for what it really is, all these same reasons that people are doing things so they can get a check, it's going to be gone because it's the only way to ensure that we have a strong value prop is that we do things the right way. If we keep embracing UX theater, everything eventually goes away. And we've already seen the signs of it. 
So that's all I can do. Encourage people again, like I've been saying this a little bit lately, make yourself a committee of one and make sure that you're going to learn UX the right way, represent UX the right way, strive to bring about the right amount of, of, of value in your organizations, manage your UX maturity for the good of everyone. And, and when we do this, we'll, we'll start to see things moving back in the right direction. If we don't, the, the spiral, the downward spiral that UX is on now, it will continue. And people have been ignoring me for years. I keep saying stuff that keeps happening, they ignore me. I say it, it happens, they ignore me. I say it, it happens, they ignore me. I'm telling you again, this is what we need to do. <laughs> or uh, it's going to get even uglier than it is today. You think it's hard getting a job now? A lot of the jobs that people do get, they don't really want you. They don't want real UX. So now, what are you going to do now? When you get a job and and the leaders don't want UX, what are you going to do? You know, even if whether you're representing UX the right way or not, the only way we win is if real UX, when, when the real UXers stand up, it's the only way we're going to win this thing. So that is it. All right, folks, that is that is the end of this presentation, this part of the sinister culture of UX. And we're only going to have a few more uh, episodes to go with this. We're going to wrap this, going to wrap this, uh, this series up. This series of of different topics. And I'm scrolling down the list now. We're going to breeze through some of the other ones because there's actually uh, there's, there's quite a few <laughs> still here. But if we go through them quickly, we'll be able to wrap up fast. So thanks again for taking the time to listen. Uh, if you're listening, I'm, I'm hoping that you're one of those people willing to do things the right way and embrace the discipline uh we wish everybody all the best though and until next time it's time to sign off this is darren hood the host of the world of ux wishing everyone all the best and until next week happy uxing everybody thanks for joining us for this session of cx of m radio be sure to rate review and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources